Greetings and welcome to my podcast, Algonquin Defining Moments. This is your host, Gay Clemson, oral history author, storyteller, and lover of all things Algonquin Park. As you know, I've researched and written extensively over the last 20 years about the human history of Algonquin Park, which I'm really having fun sharing with you. Before I begin, I wanted to first apologize for the long delay since my last episode. I had a very difficult summer and was unable to complete the research for these coming episodes in a timely fashion. However, I am now back in the saddle and do appreciate your understanding and patience. As you all know, this is all about a labor of love, and love sometimes has challenging times. I'd also like to remind listeners of a few things. First is to note that if you're interested in purchasing any of my human history books, they can be found on Amazon.ca for those in Canada, Amazon.com for those in the USA, and of course the Friends of Algonquin's online or in-person bookstores. If you'd like any copies signed, please feel free to drop me a line at clemsong at algonquinparkheritage.com. I also have available Algonquin Defining Moments t-shirts, coffee cups, or other swag, and you can find those through links from my website, www.algonquinparkheritage.com, or by going directly to my Algonquin Defining Moments virtual storefront on www.redbubble.com. As with previous episodes, I'd also like to encourage everyone to reach out and support the Wildlife Research Station in their ongoing work in environmental research, teaching, and education. Their website is www.algonquinwrs.ca. I'd also like to remind everyone about the availability now of my two new books that I'm really excited about. The first is a paperback version of my three-part series on Tom Thompson's life, art, and mysterious death on Canoe Lake in 1917, and the mythology that has resulted around him since then. It's for those who'd rather read than listen, or would like a new Algonquin something for their cottage bookshelves. Second is my Algonquin Cottage Cookbook. Early 20th century Algonquin Cottage Cookery, it's a whimsical stroll through the recipe box of Jean Bertram Peary. It's part culinary history, Peary family storytelling, and part cookbook, and brings to life what it must have been like working over a hot wood stove miles from civilization during the first half of the 20th century. My third book for the season, which should be available this fall, is called The Grand Trunk Railway Hotels, Stories of Three Algonquin Wilderness Getaways, The Highland Inn, Nominegan, and Minasing. As 2023 comes to a close, it's hard for me to believe that I've now got nearly a dozen books under my belt, so I'm pretty proud of my contribution in preserving so many of Algonquin voices from the past. So, enough housekeeping. It's time to go do some digging. Now, most of my friends, colleagues, and family have no idea that one of my secret interests since high school has been archaeology. Now, in my youth, the only perceived careers for women were teaching, nursing, and secretarial work, so early on, history or archaeology were out of the question of things to study. Of course, years later, I went way off the rails by enrolling in the School of Business at Queen's University, and in my last year took the History of Intellectual Thought, which was a first-year liberal arts class, and was my final elective. But that's a whole other story. So it wasn't until reading Rory Mackay's book, Algonquin Park, A Place Like No Other, a few years ago that I began to realize that a fair number of ancient artifacts, both indigenous and logging period related, had been found in Algonquin Park itself. And it wasn't until reading Eco Watch's 
David Euler and Mike Wilton's 2009 Algonquin Park, The Human Impact, and watching Paddling Through the Past, Otto Gatineau's ancient cultural landscape on YouTube, that I became even remotely aware of the richness of the artifacts found in this part of Ontario. So in this episode, what I'm going to try to do is share what I've discovered and hopefully spark some interest on your part in learning more. Many people are aware that history books and documents tell us quite a lot about Indigenous peoples since European colonists first met them back in 1603, who, by the way, continue to live throughout the Ottawa Valley. Their story and struggle continues to be documented and discussed as we collectively work our way towards reconciliation with our colonial past and its impacts. For this series, I've relied on a number of key sources, including Chapter 2 in David Euler and Mike Wilton's 2009 Algonquin Park, The Human Impact, which was written by Chief Kirby White Duck, Rory Mackay's Algonquin Park, A Place Like No Other, and Spirits of the Little Bonasure, several thought leadership papers by William Allen, an archaeologist, including Importance of Archaeology Concerning Species at Risk, Eel Focus, that was written in November 2007, 19th Century Aboriginal Farms of the Madawaska River, several thought leadership papers by Rory Mackay, including Potatoes in the Pines, Looking at the Material Culture of 19th Century Logging Camps, an Algonquin Park Perspective and Beyond, from April 2014. Why was this research on Cambu shanties of Algonquin Park important? Archaeological research in Algonquin Provincial Park and immediate vicinity to 2023. And an alternative explanation for the anomalous vision pits at Rock Lake in Algonquin Provincial Park. In addition are several articles in Ontario Archaeological Society's ARC notes, including one on the Puskawa Pits Rethinking the Vision Quest Hypothesis by Nancy Champagne in, in the September-October issue of 2007, the REL site Cambu Shanty in Algonquin Park by Rory Mackay in the November-December 2009 issue, and archaeologists come to their senses looking beyond visual archaeological evidence by William Allen also in November-December 2009 and the Nesawabic Petawawa River Watershed, Zone of Political Tension Over the Centuries, by William Allen in the March-April 2011 issue. In addition is the Ontario Archaeological Society Field Manual and William Hurley's Second Annual Report on Archaeological Research conducted in Algonquin Park. All of these biographical details can be found in the show notes on my platform, www.podbean.com. Just search for Algonquin Defining Moments. Sometimes, though, written documents do not or cannot tell the whole story, especially if the past one is studying extends back thousands of years, or perhaps even 10 or 11,000 years ago. Years that are full of traditions, rituals, and stories that have been passed down through the ages. This is a concept that is generally alien to most of us Western European stock, who at times can get overly fixated on the scientific method. Alas, I won't be able to do justice to much of that now, but I hope to do so in future episodes. As a sidebar, it should be noted that the term archaeological has changed over the years in Ontario. While it was common practice back in the 1970s only to refer to sites where there is evidence of Indigenous use as being archaeological sites, 
In practice now, sites at which there are historic or colonial cultural traces in the ground are also considered by the government as archaeological, or at least that is the case in Algonquin Park. Noted archaeologist, the late Ivor Noel Hume, once commented in 1974, sites, even if only ruins remain, are of importance in understanding the history of an area. It is imperative that we realize the techniques of archaeology can be usefully applied to any period, no matter how recent, if by digging something up we can learn more than is to be found in written records. But archaeology involves more than just digging. Archaeological excavation involves meticulously uncovering what cultural objects or other indicators of activity lie in the ground, and recording their location and depth, and, and what the soils looked like around them. Despite its size and the designation of the park as a National Historic Site since 1993, there has been relatively little archaeological research done in the park. But there has been some, mostly done by private researchers, rather than by or at the request and support of government. In reviewing what archaeological work has been done as research in Algonquin Provincial Park over the years, I'm using as a guide, with his permission, Roderick Mackay's unpublished background paper, Archaeological Research in Algonquin Provincial Park and Immediate Vicinity to 2023. Mackay's paper was an expansion of Ron Tozer's 1988 summary, Archaeological Resources in Algonquin Provincial Park Report, background paper, which he wrote as park naturalist and interpretive services supervisor. However, before I talk specifically about Algonquin Park, I thought it would be useful to set or perhaps reset the stage as to what is known about the Ottawa Valley Indigenous peoples based on historical and some archaeological efforts. To set some context, as mentioned in episode 46 about my three-part series on Lake Opiango, Samuel de Champlain, who we all know well, was an avid traveler. He met many groups of traveling Algonquin and Wendat parties as he traveled up the St. Lawrence and the Ottawa Rivers from Quebec City in 1613. News of Champlain's willingness to rough it in the woods preceded him with some admiration. This meant, as Adam Schultz wrote in his great book, A History of Canada in Ten Maps, Champlain happily adopted indigenous travel methods and shared the canoeing and portaging workloads. Unusual, I guess, at that time. This meant that by the time he met a local Algonquin chief, Nabashis, in 1613 at Muskrat Lake, which is near today's Cobden, about halfway between Renfrew and Pembroke, Chief Nabachus was up for sharing a peace pipe and becoming friends. One of the interesting things to note is that according to Chief Kirby White Duck, in Chapter 2 of Algonquin Park, The Human Impact, the settlement at Muskrat Lake was noteworthy because it was a settlement that included those who till the land and reap the maize. Though, as Champlain also noted, the soil was sandy, and that although they planted some crops, the group here were still basically a hunting band. Later, Champlain reached what more likely could have been called a settlement of Algonquins at Morrison Island, on the Ottawa River, near present-day Pembroke. There he met, feasted, and smoked with a famed chief named Tesuat, who controlled access up and down the river. Tesuat, though eager to make a pact, did not want Champlain to continue up the river. To discourage him, Tesuat advised that continuing was too dangerous. The Nipissings, 
who lived farther upriver, he cautioned, were a tribe of sorcerers who killed people through dark magic. Now how on earth Tesuat knew that Europeans at the time totally believed in witchcraft and weren't likely to totally dismiss native tales of the supernatural is hard to say. It may have just been a good guess, but either way, Champlain turned around and deferred his itch for more exploration to a few years later. As a side note, if anyone is interested in better understanding the social influence and cross-currents of witchcraft and religion in those days, please check out Malcolm Gaskill's book, The Ruin of All Witches. It takes place on the New England frontier in Springfield, Massachusetts, in the mid-1600s. It's an amazing chronicle. Another really interesting sidebar is Tessuat in the American Eel. It seems that in addition to his river travel management and toll collecting activities, Tessuat also managed a stone weir complex that was used to harvest American eels that were abundant in the Ottawa River and many Algonquin Park rivers at the time. There's a famous postcard of the wife of Algonquin Park leaseholder Robert Miller. It's on my website, www.algonquinparkheritage.com. Having caught one of the last ones before they disappeared from the Algonquin landscape. According to Queen's University adjunct professor John Castleman, eels were so plentiful in centuries past that they probably comprised a substantial portion of the overall inshore fish biomass. Now, according to a talk given by William Allen that was reprinted in the Ontario Archaeological Society's newsletter on the topic, it seems that amongst indigenous peoples, dried eels were used widely as a primary traveling food because of their high caloric value. The eel's skin was thick and durable and would tighten when dried. This made it ideal for use as sled binding, the tying of spears and harpoons on sticks, balls in games, the covering for bow grips, and even moccasins and clothing. There were even medical uses as a type of garter to relieve sprains, splints for broken bones, and apparently it was even worn against the skin as a sort of relief from cramps and rheumatism. Eel fat was put on skin and hair to protect from the sun, wind, and bugs, and fresh eel flesh was applied to clothing and footwear to waterproof it. When food was scarce, smoked eel skin was consumed as a last resort. Apparently, French explorers often made reference to the aboriginal use of eels, and they were also an object of trade with Champlain, himself buying 1,200 eels with goods from his storehouse to the tune of 10 eels for one beaver pelt. As William Allen went on to write, eel-catching weirs were made of wood or stone, and in a speech on the topic in 2007, they were described in 1634 by the Jesuits as ingeniously made, having collected stones extending out on either side like a chain or little wall to direct the eels, they were long and broad and capable of holding five or six hundred eels. On the Ottawa River, the eel weir complex was accessible only by white water. It was comprised of a series of straight, funnel-shaped boulder channels and at least five cascading pools. Between one pool and its adjacent line of piled rock was a finely crafted banded slate kelt. For those like me unaware, a kelt is a long, thin tool similar to an adze or axe. 
Now, having been born and raised in Toronto, I was surprised to also learn in Allen's speech that the Iroquois term for a fish weir was Toronto, and that a 1784 map showed Toronto's everywhere in central Ontario. The assumptions that we previously had that central Ontario villages were anchored in agriculture may be misplaced, and their origins may well have been prime eel habitat locations. Even more interesting is the thought that many of the pictographs, including what we think of as snakes, may well have been representations of eels. For more information on American eels and what happened to them, there's a great video on YouTube by John Castleman on the topic. Now, back to Champlain. Over the course of these two trips, Champlain described in his journals at least six Algonquin bands in the Ottawa area. A map created by Gordon Day and Bruce Trigger in their 1978 Handbook of North American Indians shows approximately where all of these ancestral territories of these bands generally were. If you go to my website, algonquinparkheritage.com, you can see a copy of this map. One such band, the Kichisipirini, built a fortified village at Morrison Island, and the group is the only known Algonquin settlement, as the Algonquins were, for the most part, nomadic peoples. By nomadic, it is not meant that they wandered about aimlessly, but that they followed the food sources as they became seasonally available within their territory. This meant that in the warmer seasons, groups would congregate, likely near great fishing spots, such as those on Lake Apiango. In the colder seasons, they would split into smaller, familiar groups and head to favorite wintering grounds where game was likely known to be spending the winter. Similar to today's deer yards, I presume. There is unfortunately no archaeological evidence as to where some of these shoreline fishing or hunting camps might have been on Lake Apiango. Some of this is due to the impact of the Annie Bay Dam. Estimated to have been originally built around 1867, the dam raised the water level of Apiango by a good two to three feet, which would have covered any frequently used camping locations. According to Chief White Duck, given the perishable but renewable nature of the great majority of the products used by the Algonquins for their structures, clothing, and implements, they did not have significant or lasting impacts upon the land and the environment. They employed natural and readily available materials such as wood, bark, and roots in their dwelling structures, and for their material needs, such as their birch bark canoes. Also used were animal hides, skins, bones, and feathers, in such items as clothing, snowshoes, and wigwams. None of these items, and even bones, would have survived centuries within the acidic soils of the Algonquin highlands. As Chief White Duck also noted, their sustainable economy of hunting, fishing, trapping, and gathering of renewable resources was suited to ensuring long-term protection of the environment, the ecosystems, and its resources, and ultimately for themselves as part of those systems. Other elements have been found, such as stone and copper and shells and other minerals, likely used as implements for cutting, scraping, and for implements of hunting and war, such as shields, bows and arrows, spears, harpoons, spear or dart throwers, called atlatls, and fish hooks that were not quite so perishable. Chief White Duck describes in detail some of the artifacts found on Morrison Island, which I'll talk about a bit later. William Hurley, who did a relatively extensive identification of early archaeological sites in the park in 1971, 
suggested that Algonquin Park may have been utilized by as few as two hunting groups, which would have been between 12 and 50 people, to as many as 10, which would have been 60 to 250 people during any one year, with most continuously moving to different kill sites, like across narrows known to be big game traveling locations. Documented archaeological work on the Ottawa River over the years has identified three different indigenous periods pre-European contact. First were the Paleo-Indians, who lived 12,000 to 8,000 years ago, who were engaged in food gathering and hunting, but had no pottery. Possible signs of their existence have included two fluted projectile points, which are spear or arrowheads made of stone, two lanceolate projectile points, and a large bifacial blade. These artifacts were found in the Rideau Lakes area. Lanceolate just means that the point was shaped like the head of a lance and tapered to a point at each end. Bifacial, on the other hand, means that both sides of the blade were made for cutting flesh, sawing bone, or scraping hide. Next were the archaic people who lived from 8,000 to 3,000 years ago. They also were food gatherers and hunters, had no pottery, but likely did have contact with peoples who mined native copper in the region of Lake Superior. This we know because, as noted in Algonquin Park, a place like no other, some copper artifacts, such as projectile points and fish hooks, have been found at Farcar Lake in Halliburton County and on Alamant Island on the Ottawa River. But copper is not native to this area, so some researchers speculate, such as Chad Gaffield, that there was an extensive trading network amongst indigenous groups that gradually broke down some 4,000 years ago. Artifacts from this time period have been quite numerous. As Roderick Mackay wrote in Algonquin Park, a place like no other, ground slate was used for many of their tools, including abraders, ulus or knives, projectile points, and axes. Polished stone gorges, or scrapers, are characteristic of Laurentian archaic culture, which suggests an extensive use of wood. It is thought that they had watercraft made from hollowed logs. They probably also made snowshoes and toboggans. Chert, from sources in southern Ontario and elsewhere, was used for knives, projectile points, and scrapers. Local quartz and quartzite were also utilized. Most tools were well-made, possibly by specialists at working in stone. Sometimes local stone was used to make a crude or temporary tool of expedience that would be used once or twice and then tossed away. In addition to tools of stone, the archaic people also used antler bone and teeth of beaver to make other material things used in their culture. Some artifacts of this age have been found on Manitou Canoe and Grand Lakes, which we'll talk about in further episodes. And as recent as 2008, a lance-shaped projectile point over 10 centimeters long with a rounded base and side notches was found by a hunter near Maynooth. Maynooth, as you know, is 15 kilometers from the southern tip of the Algonquin Park boundary. As noted at the time, though an isolated find, it's similar in shape to dovetail points called St. Charles points that are typically associated with the early Archaic period. Called the Maynooth Point, this artifact could date to 9,000 plus years ago. I think it's time for a musical interlude. This is a track from Dan Gibson Solitude's Thundering Spirit CD, and it's called Arrival.
Thank <laughs> you. 
According to Rory Mackay in Algonquin Park, a place like no other, the Petawawa River has also been a source for Laurentian archaic artifacts, including stemmed and side-notched points, a ground, slate, gorge or scraper, and three rubbing or abrading tools. Hurley and Kenyon in 1970 also suggested that other artifacts found within Algonquin Park, such as medium-sized side-notched projectile points, a ground slate projectile point, and other stone tools may also be from the archaic period. All, alas, were isolated finds. Rory went on to presume that they also made spears or spear-like throwing darts that were hurled with the aid of a wooden throwing stick. These would have been used to hunt elk and caribou, moose, deer, and beaver. They also likely made fishnets and multi-pronged spears of bone or wood to catch fish, especially during spawning time, and maybe even built wooden or rock weirs to catch fish in the main rivers and streams. Plant fibers were probably used also to make nets, bags, and rope. No clay pottery is evident in archaic period sites, so food that required boiling was probably achieved by adding hot pebbles or small rocks into bark or hide containers of water. There's even a suggestion by Gordon Watson in 1996 that bowls made of wood or steatite, a soapstone-like rock, may well have also been used. Third and more recent are the Woodlands peoples, who lived from about 2,800 years ago to the time of European contact. These people included what many of us learned in history class as the Iroquois, Hurons, Algonquins, and Ojibwes, members of whom continue to exist today. According to archaeologist Gordon Watson in 1999, the woodland period has been defined by archaeologists as the period when pottery was added to the array of bone, antler, skin, bark, wood, stone, and other implements of material the culture made during the previous archaic period. Archaeological evidence indicates that the woodland peoples were still nomadic hunter-gatherers, who camped for relatively short periods at a given locale until the game became scarce around their campsite. They then would move on to another location where game was more plentiful. Excavated sites of the Ottawa Valley show that the early woodland did not grow such food items as corn, beans, or squash, but they seem to have made some pottery vessels that likely were very fragile, as few have been found intact. 
Most found at campsites are just collections of potsherds, which suggests that they broke very easily. It's not clear if pottery making techniques were learned from other cultures or if they came with a new group of people, noted Roderick Mackay in Algonquin Park, a place like no other. However, the Middle Woodland people seem to have made pots by coiling layers of clay that were then blended to form a smooth surface, initially decorated with lines pressed into the clay with small wooden tools. One Ottawa-based consultant archaeologist, Marcel La Liberté, studied sites and populations who inhabited southern Quebec and Ontario during what is called the Middle Woodland period. These peoples also did not practice agriculture and supplemented their hunting and fishing diets with fruits, nuts, and other gathered foodstuffs. They seemed to have preferred white-tailed deer, but did not mind moose, bear, beaver, muskrat, and many other small game species. They utilized animal hides to fashion clothing containers and numerous objects. Bones were crushed to extract the marrow or segmented in order to make various tools, such as fish hooks, harpoons, and needles. According to Chief White Duck's Chapter 2 in The Human Impact, another characteristic of the Middle Woodland populations that perhaps was a sign of the regularity of their presence in a given territory might have been the fact that they buried their dead in burial mounds near the camps where they gathered. As Marcel Laliberté noted in his 1999 book, The Middle Woodland in the Ottawa Valley, there they interred the complete remains of individuals who had died, including disarticulated skeletons that were often incomplete and or burned. This suggests that these mounds included people who had died in the winter camps that had been temporarily buried there or kept until the bands returned to the gathering camp the following spring, or perhaps even several years later when the band may have organized a ceremony such as a feast of the dead. The archaeological period just before European contact in the Kitchisipperini Valley is known as the Late Woodland Period. According to Claire St. Germain in her 1999 book, The End of the Pre-Contact Period, at the beginning of the Late or Terminal Woodland Period about a thousand years ago, an important change occurred in the subsistence of certain native populations of the St. Lawrence Valley and the Great Lakes Basin. They began consuming cultivated plants. This new food source would profoundly alter their way of life, most notably their relationships with some of the animal species traditionally hunted and eaten. This change, which swept through the southern portions of Ontario and Quebec, was already entrenched in the habits of the people of the St. Lawrence Valley by the end of the pre-contact period. One of my most favorite historical documentaries about this time is the one called The Curse of the Axe. It's about an archaeological site found north of Toronto in the Whitchurch Stouffville area. The movie caught my attention because the location is near where my mother once owned a farm just outside of Uxbridge. Founded on the 10-acre site that has been dated to 1587 to 1623 were over 180,000 artifacts, including 95 wooden longhouses that could have accommodated from 1,500 to 1,800 individuals. Maize seems to have been planted in every direction from the main village site and has been estimated to be close to 2,000 acres. All types of pottery were found from all around, so it was suggested that it may have been a major trading center as well. Of course, there was the axe, that is the earliest piece of iron ever found in the North American interior. 
it was found carefully buried in one of the central longhouse sites and was found later to be of Basque origin, likely from a whaling station on the Strait of Belle Isle, which is between Newfoundland and Labrador. On the pottery side, according to Mackay, in Algonquin Park, a place like no other, in the later or late or terminal woodland period, about 1200 to 400 years ago, a few samples of what is called cord-wrapped stick pottery have been found. This is pottery where the pot is decorated by pressing sticks wrapped with some sort of cord on the pot's outer surface. Mackay went on to say that more prevalent is what is called Iroquois-style pottery. According to a 2013 Oneida Cultural Heritage Department article by Judith Jourdain, Iroquois pottery is characterized by a coarse and gritty texture. The surface has a cord roughed finish decorated with repeated geometric patterns of incised lines or twisted cords on the upper rim and lip, and sometimes on the shoulder of the vessel. The upper portion of the either round-bottomed or elongated vessel has a pronounced shoulder neck and collar or lip. Interestingly enough, this style of pottery has been found in 14 sites in the park. This could have been because Iroquois peoples were passing through Algonquin Park, or local indigenous peoples had traded them as the Iroquois normally lived much farther south of Lake Ontario. I want to take a side trip here out of Algonquin Park and talk a little bit about Morrison Island and what was found there in the 1960s. As mentioned previously, Champlain was the first to document the names of the various indigenous groups that populated the Ottawa River Valley area. It was the Kitchisipperini who were based out of Morrison Island near Pembroke. Most of these groups didn't establish large semi-permanent settlements, and their subsistence life, according to Day and Trigger, was more like the Nipissings and the Ottawas. For example, as White Duck said in 2002, when they needed a field to grow corn, beans, or squash, they would burn down the trees and turn up the ground. But Morrison Island is a bit different, as the peoples who lived there did have a settlement and collected tolls, as mentioned previously, for the use of their part of the river. From 1613 to 1649, this area was a major fur trade route, and the groups would act as a middleman between the French and the indigenous peoples farther west. The cost was horrific, though, as Economic Development Officer Sheldon McGregor of the Kitigan Zibi Anishinaabe Council wrote in 2004, since it is believed that as much as 75% of the population died of smallpox and measles during this period. According to Chief White Duck in Algonquin Park, The Human Impact, one interesting contribution to the historical record from this period comes from the 1623 journals of Gabriel Sagard, who traveled to and from the Huron Territory to the southwest through Algonquin territories. In one excerpt, Sagard describes how the Hurons used plants and tree bark for domestic purposes. Now, since the Algonquins were close neighbors and allies of the Huron, it is highly likely that they also used such plants and tree material for the same or similar purposes. As Sagard observed, in the woods there are many cedars, very fine large oaks, beeches, maple, wild cherry trees, and a great number of other trees of the same species as ours, and others unknown to us. Among these latter is a certain tree called ati, probably basswood, from which they obtain and derive products of unusual value, 
In the first place, they tear off long strips of bark. This they boil and finally get it to be like hemp, and of it they make their ropes and bags. When it is not boiled nor prepared, it is used in default of moose sinews for sewing their robes or anything else. Then their birch bark dishes and bowls, and for tying and holding the planks and poles of their lodges, and for bandaging their sores and wounds. It binds so well and strongly that one could not wish for anything better or cheaper. In marshy, damp spots there grows a plant named Onohashakwara, which we call Indian hemp. Swamp milkweed and spreading dogbane are also used by the Indians to produce a kind of hemp which makes very good hemp. The women gather and pull it up at the right season and prepare it as we do ours, but I could not learn who taught them, unless it was a necessity, the mother of invention. After it is prepared, they roll it on their thighs, and then the men make snares and fishing nets of it. They use it also for various other purposes, but not for making cloth, which they neither use or know of. Also of interest at Morrison Island were the burial practices. As found some 300 years later in 1961-62 by Clyde Kennedy and noted by Champlain in his diaries, I was filled with wonder at the sight of the tombs in the form of shrines made of pieces of wood crossed at the top and fixed upright in the ground three feet apart or thereabouts. Above the cross pieces, they placed a large piece of wood, and in front another standing in the upright position, on which is carved, rudely, as one might expect, the face of him or her who is there buried. If it is a man, they put up a shield, a sword with a handle such as they use, a club, bow and arrows. If it is a chief, he will have a bunch of feathers on his head, and some other ornament or embellishment. If a child, they give him a bow and arrow. As Gordon Day and Bruce Trigger wrote, the Kishi Cipperinis were still at Morrison Island in 1650 and inspiring respect with their 400 warriors. At the excavation, they found burial sites for about 20 men and women and children of different ages. According to Kennedy, the dead were buried in graves of different depths facing different directions. They usually lay extended on their backs, but one was in a flexed position on its side and at least four individuals were secondary burials, performed after their bones had been defleshed and placed in individual bundles. The bodies were frequently covered with red ochre, but to different extents. Some were completely covered, while others received only a few pinches. Grave inclusions were also quite variable, apparently consisting mainly of items of daily use, which had belonged to the individuals or other items thought to be of use to them. Much of the other archaeological evidence found at the site consisted of faunal evidence, animal bones, eel heads, beaver paws, and fragments. As Norman Claremont stated, another archaeologist on the dig, the site was also a very active sewing site. We found more than 120 needles. There was extensive woodworking suggested by the presence of 699 beaver incisors converted into scrapers. They may have been used in gouging holes and mortises in the finishing of wood items, in smoothing shafts and preparing items of equipment which did not survive well, such as weapons, tools, domestic utensils, and perhaps even means of transportation. As Chief White Duck noted, 
No other site in the world has yielded so many artifacts in such a small place. It is also a place where people worked bone intensively. Not only do we find hundreds of bone slivers and grainy stone abraders left over from the manufacture of various tools, such as awls, spatulas, punches, harpoons, fish hooks, and needles. Again, this work resembles preparations during which the people were stocking up on tools and rearming shafts for the coming winter. The Morrison Island site is one of the richest that we know of in this respect. We not only find axes, points, needles, fish hooks, barbs, and other tools, but also bits of copper. Note that Alumet Island, an older site that is believed to have been occupied 500 years before the one on Morrison's Island, had an even greater and more surprising abundance of native copper objects. Note that, as mentioned previously, copper is not native to this area, so must have been traded for. Chief White Duck went on to also say that we also found, like so many anecdotal whispers, a few rare specimens which harken back to another dimension of the culture of the occupants of Morrison's Island. Such is the case, for example, of a turtle rattle, which must have been used in shamanistic ceremonies and which was included as a grave offering. It is also the case with a whistle or flute made from a large bird bone. Pierced deer and moose toe bones probably used as a cup and pin game pieces, and a few tiny feathers made from bone slivers, and likely used as amulets or charms. There's also a flat stone etched on both surfaces with diverging rays, and there are pieces of bone marked with decorative geometric designs. A large piece of limonite was probably used to paint the face, and an enigmatic piece of antler was delicately pointed and decorated before being left with another deceased. These items only allow a quick glimpse of a culture life which was no doubt much richer than attested to in this collection. Of course, we all know how this story evolved, because with the Europeans came not just disease, but also lumbering in the form of square timber logging. As I've described in episode 11, square timber logging was very wasteful, and over a few short decades, beginning with Philemon Wright, in the early 1800s, at what later became the Bytown, Hull, and Aylmer area, over 9 million acres of territory were ravaged. It's hard to believe that in just a few decades, with the peak being from the 1830s to the 1850s, the aggressive cutting down of majestic old-growth forests, first for the English market and later for the American market, took a remarkably short time and the workers in those days didn't have any type of power tools, trucks, or other equipment that they do today. As noted by Chief White Duck, fires were maliciously set, resulting in the depletion of deer, beaver, and other species. The area of Algonquin Park was not exempted from this wave of cutting. Being in the western part of the territory, it was just the last area in the valley to be cut. But cut it was. There are only one or two small stands within the park that are considered to be old growth, but the consensus is that the terrain where these stands are today was too difficult to allow practical access to those sites, and therefore those small areas survived, to which we all must say a prayer of thanks. In a future episode, I'll share the stories of two of Algonquin Park's key lumber kings, John Egan, 
who was active from the 1830s to the 1850s, and J.R. Booth, who was active from the 1860s to the 1920s. I hope you've enjoyed this episode. Of course, it likely raises more questions than answers, but I hope gives you a little bit of an insight into some of the Indigenous sites and artifacts that have been found in the Ottawa Valley and Algonquin Park areas. And in the next two, we'll explore the history of digging, specifically in Algonquin Park. Until then... 